Section 23 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 41 The French Treaty and the Paper Duties, Part 1. Lord Palmerston's ministry came into power in troublous times. All over the world there seemed to be an upheaving of old systems. Since 1848, there had not been such a period of political and social commotion. A new war had broken out in China. The peace of Villafranca had only patched up the Italian system. Everyone saw that there was much convulsion to come yet before Italy was likely to settle down into order. From across the Atlantic came the first murmurings of civil war. John Brown had made his famous raid into Harper's Ferry, a town on the borders of Virginia and Maryland, for the purpose of helping slaves to escape, and he was captured, tried for the attempt, and executed. He met his death with the composure of an antique hero. Victor Hugo declared in one of his most impassioned sentences that the gibbet of John Brown was the cavalry of the anti-slavery movement, and assuredly the execution of the brave old man was the death sentence of slavery. Abraham Lincoln had just been adopted by the National Republican Convention at Chicago as candidate for the presidency, and even here in England people were beginning to understand what that meant. At home there were distractions of other kinds. Some of the greatest strikes ever known in England had just broken out, and a political panic was further perplexed by the quarrels of class with class. A profound distrust of Louis Napoleon prevailed almost everywhere. The fact that he had been recently our ally did not do much to diminish this distrust. On the contrary, it helped in a certain sense to increase it. Against what state, he was asked, did he enter into alliance with us? Against Russia, to defend Turkey? Not at all. Louis Napoleon always acknowledged that he despised the Turks and felt sure nothing could ever be made of them. It was to have his revenge for Moscow and the Beresina, people said, that he struck at Russia, and he made us his mere tools in the enterprise. Now he turns upon Austria to make her atone for other wrongs done against the ambition of the Bonapartes, and he has conquered. Austria believed by all men to have the greatest military organization in Europe, lies crushed at his feet. What next? Prussia, perhaps? Or England? The official classes in this country had from the first been in sympathy with Austria, and would, if they could, have had England take up her quarrel. The Tories were Austrian for the most part. Not much of the feeling for Italy, which was afterwards so enthusiastic and effusive, had yet sprung up in England among the liberals and the bulk of the population. People did not admit that it was an affair of Italy at all. They saw in it rather an evidence of the ambition of Piedmont. When soon after the close of the short war it became known that Sardinia was to pay for the alliance of France by the surrender of Nice and Savoy, the indignation in this country became irrepressible. The whole thing seemed a base transaction. The House of Savoy, said an indignant orator in Parliament, had sprung from the womb of those mountains, 
its connection with them should be as eternal as the endurance of the mountains themselves men saw in the conduct of louis napoleon only an evidence of the most ignoble rapacity it is of no use they said talking of alliances and cordial understandings with such a man there is in him no faith and no scruple cross me he to-morrow he will try to humble and punish england as he has already humbled and punished austria his alliance with us will prove to be of as much account as did his alliance with sardinia he did not scruple to wring territory from the confederate whose devoted friend and patron he professed to be what should we have to expect we against whom he cherished up a national and a family hatred if by any chance he should be enabled to strike us a sudden blow the feeling therefore in england was almost entirely one of revived dread and distrust of louis napoleon there was a good deal to be said for his bargain about savoy and nice by those who were anxious to defend it but taken as a whole it was a singularly unfortunate transaction it turned back the attention of conquerors to that old-fashioned plan of partition which sanguine people were beginning to hope was gone out of european politics like the sacking of towns and the holding of princes to ransom it is likely that louis napoleon thought of this himself somewhat bitterly later on in his career when the germans adopted his own principle although as they themselves pleaded with somewhat better excuse for they only extorted territory from an enemy he extorted it from a friend there could be no pretense that it was other than an act of extortion even the piedmontese statesman who conducted the transaction cavour cleverly dodged out of it himself did not venture to profess that they were doing it willingly it had to be done perhaps it had to be done by louis napoleon as well as by victor emmanuel cavour had compelled the emperor of the french to make a stand for italy but the emperor could hardly face his own people without telling them that france was to have something for her money and her blood wars for an idea generally end like this on the whole however let it be owned that the italians had made a good bargain savoy and nice were provinces of which the italian nationality was very doubtful of which the italian sentiment was perhaps more doubtful still louis napoleon had the worst of the bargain in that as in most other transactions wherein he thought he was doing a clever thing he went very near estranging altogether the friendly feeling of the english people from him and from france the invasion panic sprang up again here in a moment the volunteer forces began to increase in numbers and in ardour plans of coast fortification and of national defences generally were thrust upon parliament from various quarters a feverish anxiety about the security of the island took possession of many minds that were usually tranquil and shrewd enough it really seemed as if the country were looking out for what mr disraeli called a short time afterwards when he was not in office and was therefore not responsible to public clamour for the defence of our coasts a midnight foray from our imperial ally the venerable lord lyndhurst took on himself in especial the task of rousing the nation with a vigour of manner and a literary freshness of style well worthy of his earlier and best years 
he devoted himself to the work of inflaming the public spirit of england against louis napoleon a graceful and acrid lawyer demosthenes denouncing a philip of the opera comique if i am asked said lord lyndhurst whether i cannot place reliance upon the emperor napoleon i reply with confidence that i cannot because he is in a situation in which he cannot place reliance upon himself if the calamity should come he asked if the conflagration should take place what words can describe the extent of the calamity or what imagination can paint the overwhelming ruin that would fall upon us the most harmless and even reasonable actions on the part of france were made a ground of suspicion and alarm by some agitated critics a great london newspaper saw strong reason for uneasiness in the fact that at this moment the french government is pushing with extraordinary zeal the suspicious project of the impracticable suez canal we have already remarked upon the fact that up to this time there was no evidence in the public opinion of england of any sympathy with italian independence such as became the fashion a year later at least if there was any such sympathy here and there it did not to any perceptible degree modify the distrust which was felt toward the emperor napoleon mrs barrett browning's passionate praises of the emperor and lamentations for the failure of his great deed were regarded as the harmless and gushing sentimentalisms of a poet and a woman indeed a poet with many people seems a sort of woman the king of sardinia victor emmanuel had visited england not long before and had been received with public addresses and other such demonstrations of admiration here and there but even his concrete presence had not succeeded in making impression enough to secure him the general sympathy of the english public some association in edinburgh had had the singular bad taste to send him an address of welcome in which they congratulated him on his opposition to the holy see as if he were another achille or gavazzi come over to denounce the pope the king's reply was measured out with a crushing calmness and dignity it coldly reminded his edinburgh admirers of the fact which we may presume they had forgotten that he was descended from a long line of catholic princes and was the sovereign of subjects almost entirely catholic and that he could not therefore accept with satisfaction words of reprobation injurious to the head of the church to which he belonged we only recall to memory this unpleasant little incident for the purpose of pointing a moral which it might of itself suggest it is much to be feared that the popular enthusiasm for the unity and independence of italy which afterwards flamed out in england was only enthusiasm against the pope something no doubt was due to the brilliancy of garibaldi's exploits in eighteen sixty and to the romantic halo which at that time and for long after surrounded garibaldi himself but no englishman who thinks coolly over the subject will venture to deny that nine out of every ten enthusiasts for italian liberty at that time were in favour of italy because italy was supposed to be in spiritual rebellion against the pope the ministry attempted great things they undertook a complete remodelling of the custom system a repeal of the paper duties and a reform bill 
the news that a commercial treaty with france was in preparation broke on the world somewhat abruptly in the early days of eighteen sixty the arrangement was made in a manner to set old formalism everywhere shaking its solemn head and holding up its alarmed hands the french treaty was made without any direct assistance from professional diplomacy it was made indeed in despite of professional diplomacy it was the result of private conversations and an informal agreement between the emperor of the french and mr cobden the first idea of such an arrangement came we believe from mr bright but it was mr cobden who undertook to see the emperor napoleon and exchange ideas with him on the subject the emperor of the french to do him justice was entirely above the conventional formalities of imperial dignity he sometimes ran the risk of seeming undignified in the eyes of the vulgar by the disregard of all formality with which he was willing to allow himself to be approached although mr cobden had never held official position of any kind in england the emperor received him very cordially and entered readily into his ideas on the subject of a treaty between england and france which would remove many of the prohibitions and restrictions then interfering with a liberal interchange of the productions of the two nations napoleon the third was a free trader or something nearly approaching to it his cousin prince napoleon was still more advanced and more decided in his views of political economy the emperor was moreover a good deal under the influence of michael chevalier the distinguished french publicist and economist who from having been a member of the socialistic sect of the famous pere enfantin had come to be a practical politician and an economist of a very high order mr cobden had the assistance of all the influence mr gladstone could bring to bear it is not likely that lord palmerston cared much about the french treaty project but at least he did not oppose it mr cobden was under the impression and probably not without reason that the officials of the english embassy in paris were rather inclined to thwart than to assist his efforts but if such a feeling prevailed it was perhaps less a dislike of the proposed arrangement between england and france than an objection to the informal and irregular way of bringing it about diplomacy has always been mechanical and conventional in its working and the english diplomatic service has even among diplomatic services been conspicuous for its worship of routine there were many difficulties in the way on both sides the french people were for the most part opposed to the principles of free trade the french manufacturing bodies were almost all against it some of the most influential politicians of the country were uncompromising opponents of free trade Monsieur Thiers, for example, was an almost impassioned protectionist. It may be admitted at once that if the Emperor of the French had had to submit the provisions of his treaty to the vote of an independent legislative assembly, he could not have secured its adoption. He had, in fact, to enter into the engagement by virtue of his imperial will and power. On the other hand, a strong objection was felt in this country just then to any friendly negotiation or arrangement whatever with the emperor his schemes in savoy and nice had created so much dislike and distrust of him that many people felt as if war between the two states were more likely to come 
than any sincere and friendly understanding on any subject as soon as it became known that the treaty was in course of negotiation a storm of indignation broke out in this country most of the newspapers denounced the treaty as a mean arrangement with a man whose policy was only perfidious and whose vows were as little to be trusted as dicer's oaths not only the conservative party condemned and denounced the proposed agreement but a large proportion of the liberals were bitter against it some critics declared that mr cobden had simply been taken in that the french emperor had bubbled him others accused mr cobden of having entered into a conspiracy with the emperor to enable louis napoleon to jockey his own subjects such was the phrase adopted by one influential member of parliament the late mr horseman then a speaker with a certain gift of rattling metallic declamation others again declared that the compromise effected by the treaty was in itself a breach of the principle of free trade it was observable that this argument usually came from lately converted or still unconverted protectionists just as the argument founded on the arbitrariness of the imperial action was most strenuously enforced by those who at home were least inclined to encourage the principle of government by the people thus mr cobden mr bright and even mr gladstone found themselves in the odd position of having to repel the charge of renouncing free trade and rejecting the principles of representative government it is hardly necessary to defend the course taken by mr cobden in accepting a compromise where he could not possibly obtain an absolutely free interchange of commodities the most devoted champion of the freedom of religious worship is not to be blamed if he enters into an agreement with some foreign government to obtain for its non-conforming subjects a qualified degree of religious liberty an opponent of capital punishment would not be held to have surrendered his principle because he endeavoured to reduce the number of capital sentences where he saw no hope of the immediate abolition of the death penalty nor do we see that there was anything inconsistent in mr cobden's entering into an agreement with the emperor of the french even though that agreement was to be carried out in france by an arbitrary exercise of imperial will such as would have been intolerable and impossible in england to lay down a principle of this kind would be only to say that no statesman shall conclude an arrangement of any sort with the rulers of a state not so liberal as his own in its system of government of course no one ever thinks of arguing for such a principle in the regular diplomatic negotiations between states those who found fault with mr cobden because he was willing to assent to an arrangement which the emperor napoleon imposed upon his subjects must have known that our official statesmen were every day entering into engagements with one or the other european sovereign which were to be carried out by that sovereign on the same arbitrary principle there was in fact no soundness or sincerity in such objections to mr cobden's work some men opposed it because they were protectionists pure and simple some opposed it because they detested the emperor napoleon the ground of objection with not a few was their dislike of mr cobden and the manchester school the hostility of some came from their repugnance to seeing anything done out of the regular and conventional way 
all these objections coalesced against the treaty and the chancellor of the exchequer's budget but the eloquence of mr gladstone and the strength of the government prevailed against them all End of section twenty three